And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning, listeners. This is Lalitha Chalaya at the home to take you through till 9 o'clock this morning. A foggy morning out there. It's 9 degrees or 7 degrees, something like that. If you're under the duna, stay there. It's too cold to get out. That's what I'd say. But it was fresh. I enjoyed coming out this morning. Um, a week after the elections, what do we have? We haven't got a government, a functioning government. So looks like we're going to have more of the same, but it's sort of reassuring to see that they've got a bit of a shock. The um, voters have been taken for granted for a long time, and they've shifted. And now we have politicians who may have to actually work for their living. So that'll be interesting act to follow from now on and see how they behave. But given Christopher Pine's outburst, I think it was yesterday, uh, I am not so optimistic. But Turnbull seems to be a little bit more reserved. But the policies haven't changed. So let's see what they do with the ABCC, Medicare, and so on and so on and so on. Never ends, does it? But anyway, um, this morning we have... um, a couple of interviews that I had to um, pre-record because people were going away, so it's a bit tricky. So I've got Dick from Barcelona and Spain uh, ha- having a look at or summing up really the, outma- um, the aftermath of the Spanish elections, which we haven't looked at for some time. And I guess uh, the elections already took place a week and a half ago. So it'll be worth catching up with that since we didn't have much on the news about what happened. And um, we also have Humphrey McQueen, of course, and he didn't want to talk about the elections, so you'll have to wait and see what he says. And um, we also have another young man by the name of Sean Marler who has kayaked with his team of people across the Bass Straits for climate change, awareness, and human rights. So that would be an interesting interview. I'll call him up at about 8 o'clock, and we'll have a chat to him about what he has seen and what experiences have been and how he survived the kayaking. And I'll have to catch up with Uncle Kevin. Uncle Kevin, the program's not once again loaded up, so I'll have to ring him and perhaps he can do it live, or he'll have to do it live now. Okay, for listeners, let's go straight to Dick Nichols from Spain, who discusses the Spanish, the result of the Spanish elections um, a week and a half ago. 
Welcome to 3CR. Dick, and thank you so much for talking to us on uh, Swagati Breakfast. Today we're going to have a look at the Spanish elections that happened recently. So what happened um, during these elections? Because this is the second time they've had elections since December 20th last year. And again, we've got a tie, so to speak. Hung parliament, isn't it? It's it's a hung parliament, but it's a less hung parliament. Uh, basically, at the December 20th elections, what happened was that there was no possible majority for government created because you have now four parties that uh, each have a share of the vote, um, and none of those parties could support an, a coalition with any of the others without breaking essential uh, election commitments and losing face with their own voting base. So the basic thing that happened was that the social democracy made an, a, an alliance of a government to its right with this sort of new right hipster party called Citizens. Uh, but Podemos, the party to the left of the social democracy, which comes out of the whole uh, Indignado movement, you know, here, uh, they weren't going to support that and they didn't support that. There was no other uh, majority available. The Socialist Party wasn't going to make an alliance with the ruling uh, People's Party, so we had to go to new elections. And the result of the new elections is an increase in support, uh, marginal, but definitely increase in support for the, for the right. The balance in the country has, overall balance has gone to the right. Uh, not hugely, but definitely. Uh, and the big expectation of the election, which was that Podemos, which had done a, had united with the older left force, the United Left, that they would actually be able to get past the social democracy and hence have the initiative for creating a left government, they didn't achieve that. And the reason they didn't achieve that was that uh, just over one million voters who voted for those two parties, that's Izquierda Unida, the United Left, and uh, Podemos, back in December, didn't vote for them this time. Uh, and so the big discussion here, which is already raging uh, one week later, is why. Why did one million people who identify with the left parties, parties to the left of the social democracy, like the Labour Party, uh, the Spanish Socialist Workers Party, why this time did they not vote for a united force? Uh, and and that, is, that is the big discussion. So let's just clarify the divisions here, or the, the United Front here. We've got Podemos in the United Left with uh, we can, Together We Can. And, that's right. And Valen yes. let's say Podemos' commitment to Valencia country and the tide. The three, aren't they, all together? Well, you've got – what you have is it's, – it's complicated. You have United We Can, which is Unidos Podemos. And yep. this was – the United uh, uh, Election Coalition that was established uh, for this election because at the last election in December, Podemos did not want to run just with the United Left if there were no other forces involved. Mm. So there's three areas, three national or regional areas where there were already broader coalitions. They are in Catalonia, where I am here, we, you had Together We Can uh, in Comú Pudem in, in Catalan, in Valencia, uh, where you had Podemos Commitment, mm -hmm. uh, and then in Galicia, which is up in the Atlantic coast, uh, the far northwest part of Spain, where you had a, a broad coalition called Intide. 
Right. Um, and these coalitions all come out of the movement to give a political expression to the uh, Indignado movements, which were very different from one regional part of Spain okay. to another. Just, just so finally, at this election, finally you've got united tickets of left forces all in all the different parts of Spain, and the final piece that was set in place was this unity between the united left and Podemos in those areas where there was nobody else. Okay, when these three groups stood separately in December, they in total had more votes than what they got this time as a united front. Yes, but there's more than three groups. There's four. There's Unidos Podemos, which is united, which is united we can. And then there were the three convergences which had already existed and which were in Catalonia, Galicia and Valencia. Okay. So... I know it's all complicated, but basically what the way to see it is that there's been this pressure to get left unity in all the different parts of Spain, which we call it left or progressive unity or people's unity, yeah. on the basis of getting a proper representa- uh, presentation of the desire for change in the country that comes out of the Indignado movement, which is itself generated by the economic and political and national crisis in the country and institutional crisis. So it's complicated, but that's basically what it was. Here, finally, we had uh, an election where we had a united left force to the left of social democracy. Everybody expected that this would get past the social democracy. All the polls said they would get past the social democracy, Mm. Mm. and they didn't. They didn't, so why didn't they? So yeah, there were great expectations, weren't there? Huge expectations. Hmm. And, and, and the, average, the average poll had uh, the, uh, the, the forces to the left of the social democracy at 25, over 25%, and the social democracy at 21, 22%. Hmm. So that, that would have meant uh, a left majority in the whole country, and it would have meant that Podemos and its allies... United Left and everybody else would have had the initiative in calling for a left government mm. in Spain. Mm. And if the question is if that if that was a real possibility, and that was what the election was about. And so the right wing went berserk. This is the Reds coming back. So you mm. had an atmosphere like the civil, the Spanish Civil War, but without the guns. Right. And you had the, the PP saying, "We are the only defence for rational politics, for human civilization against the chaos and and uh, uh, basically the Red Menace." That's how they posed it. Mm. And the other two establishment parties, the Socialist Party and Citizens, were forced to compete with the PP. Mm. On, the, on the People's Party, on the grounds of who could be a better red baiter and screamer about the threat of uh, uh, a left government, and, and that was what the election campaign was about. Who could be more right than the other, yeah? That was who a competition. could be more right than the other, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So what, what actually confused me is that um, the seats won by the left was unchanged at 71, um, yep. and yet... You actually, in your article, you've written there that um, the results should have harvested another 17, but in fact, United We Can lost 17. So I find that a bit, the numbers there a bit complicating. Can you explain that's that? Because, yeah, that's because of the dodgy, not to say rigged, Spanish electoral system. The Spanish electoral system is a hair, it's like a hair clerk system uh, mm. in Tasmania, but with uneven electorates. So that what happens is that uh, a vote... A, a, an MP in one electorate, say a place called Soria, 
is elected with 35,000 votes, but an elect uh, an MP in Barcelona or Madrid needs uh, 300,000 votes. So it's not one vote, one value. Oh, and the no. thing is, what it means it, the thing is set up to favour the big all Spanish parties, the PP and the PSOE. Uh, and so what that meant was this is this is why uh, when there was not unity between the United Left and Podemos back in uh, September in, in December, uh, the United Left got a nearly a million votes, mm. over nine hundred thousand votes, mm. but only got two seats. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Right. So the the, yep. the idea was well we combine Podemos and uh, the United Left, and what that means is that we will on the, on this vote on the vote that was received back in December, we will get 17 extra seats because we will become the... the we will pick up, without any change in the voting, we will pick up seats in all these areas where they re- the vote was exhausted because the United Left was standing against Podemos. So we stand together and we should pick up 17 seats. That didn't happen. Mm. The numbers game didn't work out. But what do you think is behind this? Because the politics of this is very confusing because I had this, this, this notion in my head that, you know, where the right was winning across the world, really, including Trump in, in the U.S., the reason the votes didn't come out to the left um, is because the left wasn't presenting a viable or credible left le- leadership. Whereas in Spain, that's proved my assumption wrong. So the, the, the complicating factor here is, well, what do you have to do um, to win the people um, over? But what I see in Australian um, politics, for example, when we were handing out hard vote cards during elections recently, we found that some people didn't have any idea about what they were voting for or even how they were voting. And it was so, um, you know, interesting that people just vote because mechanically they have to vote to avoid a fine here. But over there, it's different because in Spain, people are very involved in the political discussions. They're very conscious and they know what's going on. Um, so I found that a bit confronting, if not confusing, that this could happen in Spain, which has been very radical for a long time and very political. But they're very different phenomena. I mean, here everything is politicised. You can't move, you can't walk into a bar without listening to a political conversation. Like, mm. It's not like Australia at all. Mm. Uh, nobody, you know, in Australia, even with a growing, you know, uh, decline of the two-party system, uh, you don't have the mass of people talking about politics all no, the time. They hate uh, it. <laughs> and, and so here everyone knows what they... I mean, there's a let's let's get it in proportion. There's you know there's 25 or 30 percent of people who will just abstain because it's not uh, who won't vote because it's not compulsory voting here. Right. So, you know, what is the norm in Australia is still reflected here in that in that in that group of people. But he, generally speaking, you have a high level of political ide- of identification. People know who they're going to vote for, especially on the right, and the right has an amazing capacity to get all its people out on polling day to, to a comic extent, you know, like from the, from the Catholic uh, old people's homes, the nuns wheel out poor people who don't even know where they are uh, and get them to vote for the PP. I mean, there's endless stories like that. Um, and you also have uh, this, this feeling of, not feeling, you know, this reality, which is 
uh, people know which way they're going to vote this time. It is a, you know, quite a conscious thing. Uh, it's not like you were experiencing people, oh, how does this work? Everybody knows how it works. Hmm. Uh, everybody knows how the system goes and it works on. You don't have to uh, explain it. Uh, no, but the basic difference, of course, is that his is a big social and economic crisis and an institutional crisis. Uh, and the reasons why I think, and of course this is a big debate, it's still unfolding because we've got to ex- you've got to explain not only why there was a fall in the number of people voting to the left of the PSOE, you've got to explain why the polls didn't pick up anything. No poll picked up any of this, not even the exit polls. So what it meant was there's a lot of people who went in and voted and lied about the way they voted. It's the so-called vote of shame. And the vote of shame can be, you know, a vote to the right, a shameful vote to the right, like, you know, when people, suddenly we found we had Pauline Hanson on our hands back in the 90s. No, we have, have, we have here reflect. now, we have here now, don't worry. <laughs> uh, and it reflected in, it didn't reflect in the polling, or you can, or it reflected in, in, inadequately in the polling, or you can have a vote of shame to the left. Well, here what you had was, a lot of people had voted for Podemos in December and Izquierda in December. Of course, they supported what they were saying. They liked their ideas. They liked their freshness. They liked their anti-establishment talk, uh, a line and message. But this time it was, do we really want a Podemos-led government? Hmm. Or are, are you, and that's the, that's the issue. And the answer to that, i.e. the degree to which the vote fell, varies very much with which part of Spain you look at. So in the part of parts of the Spanish state where the national question is hot, leading with Catalonia, but also the Basque country, also Valencia, um, that vote fell by less because the, this big, the big issue is what, how are we going to get independence or how are we going to restructure the Spanish state? And that issue affects people who are so-called middle-of-the-road voters, so-called middle-class voters, Whereas in the rest of the Spanish state, where the national question is either posed as, what, you know, we've got to keep the unity of Spain, that's the, you know, the PSOE and PP position, or where people are prepared to accept that there's a right to self-determination in places like in Catalonia and the Basque country. But for them, that's not a critical question because they're not living in Catalonia and the Basque country. Mm. Uh, they're in those areas, the vote for Izquierda Unida and Podemos combined, uh, United We Can, fell much more, up to 20%. Wow. Um, but the, the, you've got... This, this discussion is, of course, all, you know, raging here now, and really it's going to need a lot of investigation of the actual results to get a reliable answer to it. And I just heard yesterday that Podemos is going to do a big survey of their membership, and that's a very good thing to do, because what might be true in Extremadura, in one part of Spain, will not be true in Catalonia. Mm. Uh, so, it, you know, I can't give you a, a sort of nice, clear, simple answer to this because there is no nice, clear, simple answer. Hmm. If you've just tuned in, this is Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Just to remind listeners, these programs are available on podcast and Solidarity Breakfast also has a website that you can go to to, go, to read materials like the ones Humphrey McQueen provides us with which I upload 
to this website. So please feel free to browse his contributions. We'll have a short break and continue with the interview. Want to keep your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th birthday radiothon and we still need your support. Call 94198377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, check or FPOS. Or simply post your check or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio You got it right, you've won a giraffe uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. And now back to the interview. The history of Spain, obviously, um, you know, is very different from the history of any other country, I guess, and they've got all the different um, opinions, different interests, in, like in Catalonia versus the other parts of Spain. So what are the overwhelming features um, at the moment being canvassed as, as a um, reason? Because the, the fact that the left is not making... Uh, inroads, uh, f- uh, you know, in in the uh, polls, says something because you have the the broader picture. For example, the Brexit was a, a, a factor. Was it a factor in the Spanish elections? Is something to consider. And what about the refugee question? Is that a factor? How are the different parties responding to the refugee and migrant factor, which is being used as a bogeyman in, in a lot of the elections? And here too, I think that's been a uh, you know vote decider in some ways. Well, just on those, <clears throat> I don't think Brexit, if Brexit had any influence, it would have reinforced to one degree or another uh, an already existing tendency, which was to, to shy away from not to vote uh, amongst left voters for a united we can, uh, for, for united we can, because we really are not convinced that they are in a condition to lead a left government. There's a lot of doubt, a lot of, and that then goes to what was the, the kind of campaign they ran, etc., etc. So the factors there, uh, Brexit is not a major factor there, I don't think. It may be revealed to be a bigger factor when they do polling, etc., etc., and when Podemos does this big uh, polling of their membership. That's, a, that's on, on Brexit. Also, because, strangely enough, Europe was not a big factor in the campaign. Mm, okay. uh, they didn't, the, the PP didn't make our obligations to Europe will be destroyed by a, a 
uh, United We Can led government a campaign issue. Right. They just said, it's the Reds coming back. It was, they just pressed all the old primal nerves uh, and, you know, fear and loathing campaign here. Uh, so it wasn't a very sophisticated campaign about, you know, Spain's relation to Europe and all that sort of stuff. On refugees, refugees are not an issue here. Um, there's obviously some refu- anti-refugee sentiment, but it's completely different. It is the polar opposite to Northern Europe. Um, here you've got a movement for bringing the refugee, bringing more refugees to Spain. Uh, and a big movement, uh, and you've got the progressive councils who already set up refugee networks and have prepared uh, places where refugees can come and stay, uh, and it's all being held up by the central government. So mm-hmm. in so much as there is sentiment on the refugee issue, it's the sentiment is, why do those bastards in Madrid stop us from bringing deserving people from Greece and from Turkey here who are in a desperate situation and we can look after them and they don't want us to look after them. That's, that's the refugee sentiment around refugees here. Hmm. Uh, and nobody campaigned, you know, Tony Abbott style. I mean, that would just put you off the political map to the, to the right, not even the right campaigns like that here on the question of refugees. Mm. So the, the factors are possibly just internal, which they're examining. And what about the, you know, because this voting is not compulsory, were there a higher number of people <coughs> not voting? You know, there's a decline in the participation rate. I think it was about 3.5%. I don't have the stats in front of me here. But, uh, yeah, there was a decline in the participation rate. So that's what's got to be worked out. You know, people who voted in December but didn't vote this time, were they left-wing voters who felt nervous about, oh, I don't really know if I really want to have a victory for United We Can, um, or was it just across the board, everybody's fed up with voting and uh, because it had six months of nego- you know, negotiations, frustrated negotiations over forming a new government? What was the motivations here? Uh, so everybody can have, make their guess and it will be different from place to place. I mean, you get all, we got all this anecdotal evidence from, um, people on the polling stations in Madrid, in the working class areas of Madrid, that uh, the vote had gone down quite markedly there, that, you know, you would have, where a thousand people had turned up to vote back in December, it was only 750 or 800 this Mm. time. Mm. And the missing people were definitely working class voters, right? And, you know, obviously there's there's something there you can put your finger on because in Madrid... um, they lost two seats compared to what they had as uh, United Left and Podemos back in, in December. Mm. But that's just Madrid, and it doesn't explain everywhere else. So, as I say, there just has to be a lot of work done on this. So there are more discussion to see exactly what went on. But yeah. what does your feel about the United Left now? Will they uh, stay together uh, and continue to campaign? I mean, now well, it's a hung parliament. What's the way forward? Any uh, ideas of what's going to happen? Well, just on the first part of your question, I think um, it would be a shame if they didn't stay together. I mean, there's all sorts of tensions within the co- that coalition, which was just an electoral coalition, by the way. You know, it's all it was was just to present a single ticket with a single 50-point um, program yeah. platform. Um, <clears throat> I think it would be a big mistake if that 
that stopped. And, and it's interesting that both Pablo Iglesias, who is the General Secretary of Podemos, and Alberto Garzón, who is the uh, National Coordinator of, of, of the United Left, uh, have both said that the, sh- that the coalition should continue. Right. And the reason it should continue is not even electoral. Of course, it's important electorally, but it's, it's important because it forces everybody on the left and the progressive movement to think together about mm. what, what went wrong, what are we doing wrong, what do we need to do, what sort of organisation should we be building. There's so many huge questions out there that this result brings up. Um, that you need all your brain power, and, and the, what the least thing, the last thing you need is, you know, sort of pop explanations of which we get, you know, hundreds every day. Oh, it was because nobody wanted to vote for the communists, only you know, so that the right-wing voters, right-wing, more moderate voters for Podemos in December the 20th dis- disappeared because of the. Uh, bringing the, um, the two formations together, mm. which among some people in Podemos is, oh, they've just decided that's the way it is. Um, but that's not necessarily true until you prove it's true. Uh, and anyway, anyway, the, the whole the question is not just about elections. It's about strengthening the, the social and organisational force of the left in society as a whole. Right. Um, and to, for that to happen and for Podemos to be a much better organisation than it is at the moment, um, much more involving, with many more activists, many more people who know what they're doing, uh, for, which is, an, from, in my opinion, absolutely necessary. For that to happen, uh, that has to happen with the Ethiopian and the United Left alongside. It has to be a joint discussion, a joint debate, and hopefully that's what we're going to see. But, you know, don't put your money on it. Okay, that's the first yeah. part of the question. The second part is, what's what are you what's what are you hearing in the um, you know uh, discussions what's so to happen? speak? What's going to happen now they've got a hung parliament? Because I, the right wing doesn't have exactly a coalition together to um, form I, a government, has it? Well, it's going to be very interesting to see because the, the PSOE has said that they will not support a PP government. <laughs> That'd be right. The, uh, the citizens have said that they will not support a PP government if it's led by Mariano Rajoy. Uh, those, on my opinion, is I'd take a bet on this that those those rock solid positions will suddenly become very flexible. Of course, because not neither of these forces want to go to a third election, mm. uh, and also what the PSOE wants to do is get the PP back into government, get into opposition themselves, and then continue the fight in opposition against United We Can. Because the real fight here is about who's going to be hegemonic on the left. And that fight has not been solved by this election result. All that happened here was that the, the United uh, We Can did not overtake the PSOE. So the PSOE, the, the Socialist Party, uh, won that particular battle. They held them off. But there's no, they also lost five seats and they are not in a good situation and they have lost to their right because the PP picked up seats from the Socialist Party, uh, five seats, um, because it was a competition about who was going to be the more right-wing. Well, yes, funnily enough, who was more, who proved to be more right-wing, you know? Yeah. Um, so that, for the PSOE, they've got to get their left credentials back. How do they get their left credentials back? They've somehow got to get the PP back into government without paying too high a price for abstaining, which is what they will have to do for there to be a PP government. They will have to abstain on a 
on a motion to support such a government, uh, and then they go into opposition. And then they can, of course, in opposition, they can prance and scream and yell and you know, look more radical than anybody else because it right. doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, but it's what, they, it's what they have to do uh, against United We Can. Mm. Okay, on that note, um, I think maybe we should leave it there until more discussions uh, happen in Spain and we'll get a bit more of insight about this whole scenario, so to speak. So we shall catch up with you in a couple of months or so to see the progress, progress of discussion and what sort of government get, comes to power. Thanks very much, Lali. But I'd just say to people, don't get too depressed, even if people were hoping for a much more exciting result. You know, this is the struggle continues, as somebody once said. Okay, thank you. Thanks, all the best. Bye. Bye. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. That was Dick Nichols, a reporter for Green Left Weekly, who is a regular on our program, talking about the results of the second round of elections in Spain. Thank you, Dick. And we have on the phone a young man called Sean Marler. Is it correct, Sean? Yeah, good morning, Lolita. Hello to you. Um, now, you are from a group of people who kayaked across the Bass Straits, and you, ra- you did that to raise awareness on climate change and human rights. Um, seems a little bit out of the blue. Tell us about your group and why you actually did this. Uh, well, good morning, and thanks for uh, thanks for having me on the program. Good morning to all your listeners. Um, yeah, paddling across Bass Strait, um, it's uh, about 350 kilometres from uh, from Victoria to Tasmania across the across the oceans. And um, yeah, the idea first stemmed um, last year when a friend from Brisbane, uh, a fellow kayaking friend, suggested we um, we plan a trip and and make it happen. And um, yeah, I was very keen. It's something I'd thought about for a very long time to to do something a little bit crazy and a bit outrageous to, <laughs> yes. to paddle across. And and the idea stemmed from there. And then um, we uh, we're all very passionate about environmental and human rights issues. So we thought, well, well why don't we do it? And, and along the way, we'll we'll raise the profile of, um, of 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 Indigenous people with their struggles and the um and and climate change and how that's affecting everyone on the planet. So we uh, yeah we raised a bit of awareness as we as we went along, and, and that was great as well. I didn't hear about it actually, except just by chance someone um, alerted me to your activity. So, what sort of, what did you actually um, set out to achieve, and did you achieve what you wanted to? Uh, Well, with um, with with a very basic grassroots campaign, our our main goals were to uh, to raise awareness and raise the profile of of climate change and, and, uh, and human rights. We, um, we, we didn't have a budget. We were self-funded. We, uh, we were all working. We were preparing the expedition ourselves. So, look, we didn't have a huge amount of time and effort to, um, to go on out with a big PR machine to, 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 to raise huge awareness. So we, we just did it ourselves. We, we wrote some media releases. We got in touch with some friends. We, um, we put together a website. 
we um, created a Facebook page. So I guess we used those angles to, um, to to get our message out, and and it seemed to seemed to work, you know, reasonably well. We we weren't really sure what type of interest we were going to get, but but we got um, we got a lot of support. A lot of people were uh, following us on our Facebook, and we raised a small amount of money. A little bit of media followed us, so. I'm, you know, I'm not sure how how you gauge, you know, what type of outreach you get, but but we were really happy with what we did get with the amount of effort we put in, and um and so that's how we went about it. And, and sorry, what was your other question linking to that? No, no, that just just um, what your aims were in in how much and what did you achieve through it was a question you've answered it. But what I want to also ask is your interest in West Papua. You have mentioned in your in your press release that. Um, you're in support of uh, West Papua. What's your link to West Papua? Well, I got involved in the, the Freedom Flotilla West Papua that ah, okay, uh, took okay, place okay. in 2013. Mm. And so that was a that was a real pivotal time when uh, when I became very aware of the of what was going on in the West Papuan landmass and um, and did the land journey from um, from Melbourne up to to Lake Eyre on, on Arabana Nation land and then um, drove up to, to Cooktown and then from there the, the boat sailed off with the sacred water to deliver it to, to West Papua. So that was how I, I got involved in that campaign and mm. um, that was an amazing journey to, to be a part of. Again, a, a fabulous grassroots campaign with uh, with lots of West Papuan refugees who have since settled here in Melbourne and, um, and the Arabana mob and, and uh, it was great. It was really incredible. So... Yeah, that's how I got interested in that. And mm. Mm, I know yeah. 3CR was was um, uh, you know 100% behind the flotilla, and we were really running like almost a campaign um, thing at 3CR. Every program was talking about it, and we promoted it um, to support and raise awareness because it's such an important issue. And I've I've interviewed the West Papuans um, a month, well twice in a row, really. Um, just to alert people to what's happening there, as you have mentioned that you know five thousand five hundred thousand Papuan people have been killed or have disappeared um, in the recent times, and it is an awful state in what's happening in um, Papua and and the battle's going on anyway. But the good thing is they've got the listing for independence and the UN, which was the last interview I did, which was, was really good. But going back to your team, I'm interested in this mainly because your um, desire to raise awareness about the environment, um, I think uh, from, from, I guess, you know, listening to different programs and uh, watching the elections, it was clear to me at least that there was a lot of awareness about climate change, global warming and so on. But what really worried me is the uh, recognition of how urgent it is. That's what worries me. And I'm not sure what your group has done around this issue. Um, where are you on the climate change um, angle, um, especially with the, with the elections that, that have just finished? We didn't have any of the politicians talk about climate change sufficiently. It was it was a great disappointment actually when uh, in the lead up to our federal election and and, and indeed a, a huge indictment on behalf of both the um, the LNP government and the the Australian Labor Party that they weren't speaking up on that big pivotal issue and um, look that's that's disappointing but um, 
yeah, I guess they've got their own agendas and they try and mask, you know, jobs and growth and this and that. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that I'm sure yourself and a lot of your listeners are aware of. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, climate change is, uh, is a really big issue. We've, we've had, uh, 10 of the hottest years in, um, in the last 15 years on record and, and we continue to break records, whether it's, um, snap freezes in winter in the Northern Hemisphere and, Many people, um, you know, we, we just get unprecedented amounts of snowfall or, or horrendous droughts, um, big floods, cyclone storm surges in uh, along the eastern seaboard not too long ago where we had uh, extreme damage to infrastructure, uh, including the uh, the wood chip mill at Eden, which which was a blessing in disguise. The fury of nature has uh, has smashed the uh, the wood chipping pile where uh, many of our native forests go over to uh, foreign lands to be turned into paper there at Eden and. Um, yeah, I guess I guess nature will will start to really bite humans really hard, and um, I guess well, we just recently saw that um, carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere reached 400 parts per million. Mm. And to um, to make that into an easy to understand scenario, we've we've got amazing climate scientists who are uh, fortunately some are still employed. We've seen lots of job losses um, again by our LMP governments to um, to try and silence people who are speaking out on climate issues. But you know we, we we do have a fantastic history, and some of the best climate scientists have come out of our country here. And people measure um, they measure ice cores from Antarctica, and they can drill down and. Get, get really, really, really big bits of, of ice core and they can measure how much carbon has been deposited in these ice cores over many, many tens and hundreds of thousands of years. And and um, and something that can be measured quite easily with the technology today is the amount of carbon that was in our atmosphere. And, and we know that in the mid-1700s, before the expansion of the, um, of the Industrial Revolution, we um, we had about uh, 270 parts per million of carbon, and, and our, our planet was pretty stable then. We um, we we had a very stable planet, but since the industrial revolution, we we discovered oil and coal, and um, and of course this opened up huge opportunities for for human civilization to push forward with uh, with the development and the manufacturing and the and the powering of energy in different forms, but. But the legacy of that has, has been huge and great. And, and we didn't know the damage that burning coal and oil were going to cause back in, in, in 1750 and in, in 1800. No, no one knew the issues there. But today the science is very clear and, um, and it's, it's very easily accessible. And um, it, you know, anyone who's relatively engaged in the issue can find out a huge amount of info on climate change and, and the impacts it's going to have. And... Um, and in 2016, you know, we've got a lot of information and uh, we've passed 400 parts per million. And, um, yeah, it really is coming into uh, to a tipping point. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how much longer we've got before we pass the point of no return, but um, coupled, with the, coupled with the fact of industrial logging of our native forests, um, coal seam gas expansion, which is damaging our water supplies, uh, industry just just ploughing on and business as usual. That um, you know the, the Earth is a pretty fragile, finite blob of mass that's floating through the cosmos, and it can't continue to take, can't continue to give and give and give before something uh, before something happens. And um, look, I'm, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm I'm hoping that the kids of today can have a future like you and I, and uh, you know listeners born you know during the 1960s and 70s can live. But uh, but there's also a part of me that um, that, that 
is very scared and frightened about the unknown as to where we are heading. So, um, look, the sooner the better for um, not just the Australian government, but, but global leaders to really make some big decisions on that. And we did see some stuff come out of Paris last year to, to try and limit warming to two degrees Celsius. And, um, and if that is implemented around the world by those countries that signed on, then, then, then wonderful. That's a great start. But, but we can't stop there. We've, we've really got to push on and, and continue to, uh, to really address this this um, number one issue on the planet for sure. You know, if future generations are going to uh, to live a happy, healthy life and and um, enjoy the planet as we very well know it, then, then I think climate change really needs to get back up and be uh, be number one on the agenda. Right? Mm. Good to hear that passion because uh, it's one of my um, passion areas of, of work as well. I just despair. I'm not as optimistic as you, perhaps, but I plug on and, 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 you know, do the campaigns and and certainly involve as many, um, get involved in as many campaigns as possible. But the the key thing for me is that um, from my readings, that Paris climate change um, or the, the the Paris Agreement is not binding, and that's that's one of the biggest issues. And also the fact that, you know, although they say, agreed to two, the scientists are saying that unless it is constantly kept under 1.5, you'll go into the 400 parts per million on a permanent basis. At the moment, it's going up and down. It sort of goes up, then comes down, goes up, and comes down. But if it gets into that, that 400, above 400 area, and stays there consistently, then we are done. That's that's what that's my understanding. I mean, that's why I, maybe I'm opt- uh, pessimistic. <laughs> but as you say, the future generation really have to pick up the ball and 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 start doing something serious about this stuff. But anyway, sure, sure. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's good to hear your passion. But I'm just wondering, um, are there a lot of young people involved with you um, in in this sort of campaign you've started? Oh, look, there's there's an amazing network of youth who are coming up, who are engaged in the issues, who are um, who who are lobbying their government leaders and lobbying their parents. You know, that, that's a that's mm. a really big one mm. because uh, I, I'm 43 and you know I, I went to school and, and everyone who I went to school with, you know, we weren't we weren't privy to these issues and it's only sort of um, you know when you start to think outside the box and do your own research that that environmental education becomes really apparent. And, um, and it should be a real integral part of the syllabus. There, there's no doubt about it. Um, there's bits and pieces of biology and geology and, and, and you know, there, there are small elements of that that are taught through primary and high school. But, um, you know, it really needs to be a, a massive, um, a massive part of the school syllabus in my eyes. That's, that's what I think. To start with the kids. Uh, and then the kids can become the change agent both for their parents and their grandparents. People who have lived their life and um, and might not be as aware of, of, of climate issues and and might be living a real comfortable existence. They they might be mm, they mm. might be they might be cashed up and uh, you know loving their negative gearing on their second property or whatever. And um, you know unless you take a genuine interest in it, then um, yeah you know you might just let it go by the by. So so hopefully the kids can 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 kickstart a new revolution. And um, you know you've got the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. You've got uh, lots of amazing groups, you know, young people who are getting involved. So, so yeah, well, leader, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about those groups. Whether or not we can uh, kickstart this revolution in time, that <laughs> remains to be seen. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Sounds good. Um, so, any future campaigns you you want to let people know about, or you you know, if if you want to invite people to visit your website, what's your website or your Facebook? That'll be useful for people who are listening. Yeah, yeah. I, um, so we called the campaign Bass Strait by Kayak. 
and we um, we we did a, a Facebook page for that, and there's a website as well associated to uh, to Wix W I X, which is a, a fabulous free website you can do. So um, yeah, people can clock on there and they can uh, follow our journey. Of course, we were we were doing regular updates as we kayaked over the 15 days between Victoria and Tasmania. So. Fortunately, we, we had um, access to a satellite phone and uh, radios and uh, technology along the way, so we were able to provide photos and little little short story updates so people can sort of go on and have a look at that. Um, campaigns at the moment, oh, pick your, pick your battle. Where do you want to go? <laughs> uh, I mean, we, I've just heard that um, greyhound racing will be banned in New South Wales. Which and, is good. Um, as someone passionate about animal rights, I think that's, that's fantastic and that's a wonderful step forward. So... There's that. We've got um, coal seam gas is is, is 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 huge again in Victoria, and uh, I know friends of the Earth are doing some amazing work there to uh, to keep that out of Victoria. Uh, New South Wales and Queensland have, have have suffered a lot from that. So coal seam gas, there's coal mining, there's native forest logging, there's uh, there's indigenous rights. Yeah, yeah. Pick your pick your battle for a campaign, my leader. There's so many out there. So I'd, if people are listening and they want to get involved in one, it's, it's try and find something that, that they resonate to, that they're passionate to, to make a bit of noise about and, and get involved with a with a group like Friends of the Earth or Australian Conservation Foundation, okay. Oxfam Australia. Absolutely. Okay, thank you very much. And if you get into um, any other activity, let us know so you know people who are interested can follow you. And um, thank you so much for being available this morning, Sean, and good luck. Excellent. Thanks for the time, Lolita. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye. So that was Sean Marler telling us about his trip across the Bass Straits uh, and the air called... Um, what is it called? Bass Trait by Kayak. So a bit of an adventure by young people. Now, uh, I will get uh, an announcement going while I get hold of Uncle Kevin so that we can have his contribution live today. Okay, so we have uh, Uncle Kevin on the phone. So here we go. Morning, Kevin. Morning, Lali. And uh, just one thought. When you were talking earlier to Dick and he talked about the fact that it was like the Spanish Civil War without the weapons, the thought struck me, why do they call civil wars civil when they're so bloody uncivil? Uncivilised. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yes, it's um, a a web of contradictions out there, (laughs) like the capitalist system. But anyway, (laughs) you would have something fun to say this week because last week was elections. So off you go. Well, I did. And we finished on a note we're going to pick up again on because it's a week, well a solidarity breaking team of one listener when thank you true blue Aussie voters after we ended this segment last week with I can't work out how to get none of the above over the line well it happened, thank you true blue Aussie voters for rejecting caring business class big supremo Malcolm's ton of bull and thwarting socialist party supremo and would be big supremo little Billy's short ambition, although if little Billy had got over the line the mind boggles at what his victory speech would have been like if it actually won and Malcolm finally turned up sometime Sunday amid a collection of empty Bordeaux bottles and glasses, food scraps, tattered posters and tears to explain to his family and a few overnight exploited cleaning staff the rejection of his tonne of bull had absolutely nothing to do with his tonne of bull and more especially with him.
him. It was the socialist lies, the evil unions and socialist lies and the evil unions. And Malcolm told us true Blue Aussie voters didn't get the result they wanted. Malcolm, we got the result we wanted. We voted for it. But let's give poor state of shock Malcolm some slack. What he really meant was true Blue Aussie voters didn't get the result he wanted. Earlier in the gloom of the caring business class party do at the plush Sydney venue as they sipped on their hemlock, the only reaction to little Billy's victory speech was when he mentioned Medicare and evil unions, loud booing, showing just how evil Medicare and evil unions are. On the positive side, since Saturday, Malcolm and Little Billy have proved themselves to be insightful analysts and astute sophologists, with Malcolm telling us his chances of remaining big supremo comes down to the counting. And Little Billy, asked whether he could form government, said, if we win enough seats. Brilliant! Who'd have thought? That's the sort of analytical thinking this country needs at the top. Sadly, while on the broad scenario the voters chose none of the above, on some narrower scenarios they came up with some of the below. That appalling Hoonsun getting NADOC week off to a roaring start. No Aborigines, no blacks! We should never have let these people come here in the first place! Although whenever we think of her racism, homophobia, well, let's be honest, sheer stupidity, we have to admire her sharp-as-attack sense of humour, exhibited when a Socialist Party hack senator jokingly offered to take her to a halal dinner. No! Appalling screeched. No halal! Halal must be banned! Down with Islam! Or, or something like that. Well, she knows you don't joke about something as serious as terrorism, untrue blue Aussie values, bludging on the public purse. Because we know these people all bludge on the public purse and take our jobs while bludging on the public purse and drive cars we can't afford explaining why appalling wants a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission to ban Islam altogether and whack a surveillance camera in every mosque pending their abolition. Why not just move to ban it without the expense of the Kanga mission? Although, wonder if appalling ever reconsiders her position when she hears Islamic spokespeople denouncing homosexuality or any sexual activity not supported by the dear baby Jesus. Well, no, no, why reconsider rigidity and don't try to offer her sweet and sour chicken? Surely her idea of sophisticated Asian food. No, no, no sweet and sour, no Asians. She's a million laughs, isn't she? And she doesn't want just one Her Most Gracious, Ma Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission. She also wants one to prove climate change doesn't exist to oppose the 99.999% of misguided scientists who stupidly think it does. No science! Uh, appalling, why are you standing on that chair? Where did all this water come from? No science! And Darren Lynchamall, who recommends we spend 93% of the public purse on prisons and gallows, but save money by not bothering to cut a key. Although that would avoid the fun of throwing it away. Nothing like an ex-jailbird to alert us to the evil of the evil. The evil being weak-kneed judges who know nothing about the law and long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron defence lawyers who abuse justice by acting as defence lawyers want the accused to be treated as human beings. The, the accused, or sorry, the guilty. Why waste time on a trial at all? Evil, the laughingly light penalties these anti-Trublowozzi criminals receive. Why? Some shoplifters 
workers trying to feed their family won't even die behind bars. Although the gallows could sort that problem out. Darren, the true Democrat, the true man of the people, said in his new role he would listen to people. I'll only go for life without parole if they disagree with me. He was all reason. And Nick Xenophobia, he of the black, 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 not one grey to be seen, all eponymous modesty, told us we're the sensible centre, not the left or the right. Although if Nick's listening, and I'm sure he is, could he give us a call and tell us where the left he talks about is? Anyway, told us where the sensible centre is. I will not support the Socialist Party in changing negative gearing, he announced a big centre policy, even if the changes are minimal and will allow us, our investors, to keep ripping off. After all, while it wouldn't affect my current investments, I've got the future to think of. Tut, tut, Nick, ending a sentence in a preposition. Not that he isn't short of a sentence. Interview Saturday night with the candidate who won a lower house seat and even though the crossover said they'd be talking to her, she couldn't get a word in. Toward the end of this long, long, long monologue, she was ordered to rolling her eyes and staring at the ceiling. Presumably when she speaks in the house, she'll have to carry a pre-recorded Nick speech. The poor Trublowasi capitalist review resorted to a double-page editorial to tell us we'd got it all wrong. And the sundry chambers of profits and great exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all told us we had got it so wrong, preventing Trublowasi from achieving the biggest reform it needs for all of us to be so prosperous. Get rid of evil unions and introduce flexibility, that important win-win element of caring business class relations. Flexibility and certainty. We need the certainty evil unions and lazy avaricious workers will not interfere with our endeavours to do what's good for them. Uh, what would interfere with your certainty? We asked spokesperson David Bloated. Well, the obvious impediments, wages, conditions, crippling work practices and similar attacks on productivity and the national interest. Over in the US of the UN of the US of the world, being careless is especially careless for some and especially beneficial for others. Sending thousands of classified state secrets on a personal thingy is careless but not criminal, especially beneficial if you plan to be big supremo of the biggest exponent of the greatest little economic order of them all. Having a broken rear light on your car may be called careless, but obviously so criminal it warrants summary execution or lying on a footpath with two giant oh, sorry, coppers um, standing over you and holding you down is obviously so careless it warrants summary execution. Not suggesting the slightest semblance of racism, but it does appear careless could be especially careless if you're careless and black, or black, which is careless. Thank goodness I'm white. Hillary must be breathing a sigh of relief. Related to the coalition of the killing perpetrators, George W. Bash, the workers, Tiny Blyer, and the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo here back in the last Dark Ages, all denied they were war criminals, said the ongoing slaughter in then evil, now good, good, good Iraq showed how much better off the dead and injured are thanks to their invasion. C. 
certainly there are terrorist groups there who may not have been there when we liberated these people. Certainly the country is a, a little destabilized, and, and yes, it does seem thousands of these people may be being slaughtered and blown up and injured, but we can be sure they know as we know they are now better off thanks to us, to our goodness, to our Christian humanitarian invasion, our liberation. And this Trubler was the ex-trained killer, now trained killer academic, if that not be an oxymoron, Peter Lye, said the blame for the lie that that damn Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, was harbouring terror, and planned to invade every Christian country in the world, lay fairly and squarely with that damn Hussein himself. He misled them. Uh, Peter, George W., tiny, little bald-headed bloke, colon as in full of shit pal to the rich, Donald Rumsfeld, the Arabs, et al., which bit of, we have no weapons of mass destruction, didn't you understand? Misled you. As for George W., I can understand confusing you, and Donald knew he didn't know what he didn't know, he knew he didn't know. Despite all that, there was a kind of connection, kind of something in common between George W. and that damn Hussein. Arabic is written right to left, backwards as we see it, and George W. reads his comics upside down. The guarantee, despite some biased, long-haired commie people still using the word lie in relation to George W., Tiny, and the little bald-headed bloke, is that the honourable people involved were all politicians, so we know it couldn't have been a lie. Finally, speaking of lies, the Socialist Party has leapt on the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country report to tell us it knows the invasion was a mistake. What a pity it didn't say that at the time. It's then Supremo and would-be big Supremo's simple Simon couldn't get to the runways and wharves fast enough to wave the train killers goodbye. Still, the Socialist Party now thinks it was a mistake. It just took 13 years to wake up. Like, I woke up this morning to do this. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you very okay. much. Thanks, Lally. Bye. And... That was Kevin Healy with his the weekly satire, really, wasn't it? Since I didn't get to do the announcements earlier, um, I thought I'll do it now, just before playing Humphrey's pre-record, um, which is unusual, but he's on holidays. Now, announcements. Um, a sad one, really. Um, an activist was murdered in uh, Honduras. Uh, Yanath Urquia was found dead. Um, with head, very severe head injuries. She was an active member of COPEN, and uh, for people who may remember, COPEN is the Council of Popular and, in, and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras. And uh, Bertha Caseras was um, assassinated, really, four months ago. And there has been moves um, in the U.S. Uh, to bring on a bill to stop money to Honduran policy, but... Who knows what will happen, but we, we at the moment have another death of an activist from that organization. Obviously, that organization is powerful enough and the establishment is threatened by it. And, of course, by the establishment, I mean the U.S.-backed uh, government, well, those elected center-left government experiencing one of the highest murder rates in the world. So if you want to know more, do um, visit their website, C-O-P-I-N-H. 
uh, and you'll get more information on that um, sad event. Okay, since we were talking about West Papua earlier on, um, I thought I'd make this announcement. Uh, we mentioned this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. It's a open day, Sunday the 14th of August. The West Papuan community is holding a special ceremony for West Papuan Rent Collective. Lunch will be provided. Dapor Sampari. I'm not sure what exactly that means, but it's some sort of um, uh, special dish that's obviously unique to West Papua. And the celebration of the relisting of uh, West Papua on the UN decolonization agenda and the launch of decolonization boundaries and self-determination by Annette Kali. So if you wish to attend, it's, it's a mere $5. So that is the 14th of August, 1 to 3 p.m. at 838 Collins Street, Docklands. For those who um, know or knew uh, Lynn Beaton, who used to do this program with me I think last year for a short period, uh, as many of you know, she has uh, unfortunately passed away. And um, a memorial is being held um, at the Brunswick Town Hall today at 11 a.m. for those who wish to attend that meeting. Now, there's also a rally today, Defend Latin American Sovereignty, No New Operation Condor, in response to the coup in Brazil, foreign intervention and attempts to regime change in Venezuela. So those who wish to attend, it's at the State Library at 12 noon, organized by LESNET. On the 14th of July, the Women's Liberation Movement Victoria is holding a forum. Um, it's, it, the speakers will be uh, author Jean Taylor, uh, who will give an overview of a recently completed historical trilogy with Doug Books uh, about the Victorian Women's Liberation Movement. It's a historical um, discussion. And it will be held at the New International Bookshop at 7 p.m. at Trades Hall, which is 54 Victoria Street. And there's an exciting uh, red cinema being held by the Green Left Weekly people. And it is on the 15th of July. That's Friday, next Friday. It's called UK Gold. Um, It's interesting because they reveal this is bigger than the Panama Papers. And um, while the governments are crying poor, we have another display of enormous wealth being hidden away. Now, it's a Mark Don's award-winning film. It shows how Britain in, is at the center of global tax avoidance industry, narrated by Dominic West with music by Tom York. It runs for 90 minutes for those who are interested. It's at level 5. 407 Swanson Street, opposite Aramite, $10 and 5 concession, and it's a meal available as well. Now, there's an ongoing protest, of course, at Bendigo Street. Um, that in, is in demand for public housing, so please um, do offer your support when you can. Pop in and say hello to the people who are there holding these properties. Um, <clears throat> they're empty, as we know, East Westlink um, project produced this, these houses, and they remain empty, and the homeless people occupying it, and good on them. In 18 Bendigo Street at Collingwood, so drop in any time. And, of course, there are other um, industrial um, fights going on. Uh, For those who are not aware, the brewery workers are fighting for their jobs. 62 maintenance workers uh, that make 
um, pure blonde beer in Victoria. Having sacked, I've got a bit put up the pure blonde <laughs> beer, that's strange. Have they been sacked and re-offered the jobs at 65% less pay? They are fighting to get the jobs back and earn decent wage. The protest is on daily from 6am to 6pm. Carlton and United Breweries, 77 South Bank Boulevard, South Bank. July 16, a rally, sovereignty and sanctuary in order to recognise the plight of refugee arrivals to Australia as well as ongoing struggle for indigenous, indigenous self-determination, First Nations liberation, rise and war holding a solidarity event. And this is at the State Library at 1 p.m. So two Saturdays in, in a row we have protests. Um, this Saturday, well, today it's um, at 12 noon, and that's less than next Saturday. I think it's next Saturday. Yes, it will be. Um, it's um, again at State Library, this time at 1 p.m. It's about sovereignty. And there's also an Indigenous Music Festival, which is uh, held on the same day at the corner at 1 p.m. on the corner of Stanley and Smith Streets in Collingwood, and that is, <coughs> excuse me, featuring local community band, stray blacks, hip hop, and jazz artists, Lady Lash, traditional and contemporary artists, Yermal Marika, and high energy hip hop dance, indigenous hip hop, and so on. So those who are interested, 1 p.m. corner of Stanley and Smith Streets, Collingwood doesn't give you a name of the venue, but might be on the pavement. Anyway, let's move on. And we have Humphrey. Welcome to Tricia Humphrey. Another week. Another week, another financial year, and another financial crash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no laughing matter. I don't know. The way the elections have gone, I'm, I'm worried now. <laughs> Well, I don't, I don't think anything. I don't think anything that happens in Canberra is going to have any effect. I don't think this is the butterfly wings that's about to produce the great financial tsunami. I don't think we can con, con ourselves into that. It's what almost, we can it, look at. Yeah, sorry. I mean, just it, what, they're almost irrelevant, aren't they, to the, what the processes oh, are going well, on? Well, the worst part about it is they make themselves irrelevant by not paying any attention yeah, to what's actually right. going on out there because they're too frightened to say yeah. uh, the kinds of things we've been talking about all year and mm. um, so at the beginning of the year if I just quote myself back so we can clear this up I said a financial crash is much more likely than not during 2016 when it strikes it'll be far greater than in 2008 the entire global economy will seize up as almost happened in October 2008 well that's how we began now last month uh, I ended by pointing out that Shortly, uh, the Bank of International Settlements will issue its report for 2016. Mm-hmm. And if the bank, I said, if it now says everything's on the mend, I'd have to eat my proverbial. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, the report came out on the 26th of June, Sunday, eight days ago. And I've read it through thoroughly, and I don't think I have to eat all of my hat. I probably... <laughs> okay should eat the feather in the hat band. Oh. I, think that's, I, think that, I think that's probably enough, given what I'm going to tell you the report actually contains. All right, let's go. They're not, this time, unlike 2007, they're not saying that the whole thing is going to be over by Christmas. Uh, but it's a long, long way from being optimistic. Uh, we put the 13-page um, up 
on this 3CR site and comrades will be able to read it for themselves. Yes, and, yes, and I see will what, do that. Yep. And see what they think. Yes. Okay, but what I want to do today is to just outline it for people um, as, to, as to what it is. We probably do need, just very quickly, because we can't assume that everyone who's listening now has heard all the previous broadcasts. No. So we have to say a little bit about what is the Bank of International Settlements. Well, it's the central bank for the central banks. Um, that's fundamentally what it is. Its job is really to settle all of the trading accounts and financial accounts between all of the, all of the major uh, national economies. So instead of Australians have, Australian having to pay every other country for everything we buy from them and they're having to pay everything to us, which we just add up all the debits, all the credits, and they just settle what the uh, differences are. Um, so what the Bank of International Settlements, you know, we could say very simply it does, is the bookkeeping, and then all the transfers are made from there. Um, now, it's not like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund. It doesn't implement policies of its own. It doesn't go around the world destroying people's lives in the way those other two institutions have done. But it's quite influential because I have the information it, it has to gather and because it has a big research arm that puts out a lot of reports, including the annual report. And you might say, well, who's going to know more about what's happening to global capitalism than the bookkeepers? Um, they certainly know a great deal more about it than I do. Mm. Um, or, in fact, I think almost anybody else in the world. And that's why I think we should turn to it for their big picture as to what they think is happening to the global economy. Now, this all got started for me in 2007 when I stumbled upon, I don't now remember how, the report for that year. And what it said was that the global economy faces a 1930s-style crash. Now, that was 16 months before Lehman Brothers went down. Now, there weren't too many people, there were some, there weren't too many people who were predicting anything like that, nor anything quite as dire as if we don't didn't do something, we'd be back to the 1930s. Now, amusingly, I was writing for Crikey a bit in those days, and I wrote a piece just reporting what the bank had said. And the editor wrote back to me and said, I can't publish that. It's too depressing. Oh, God. <laughs> it is too, though. <laughs> you know, the danger of a depression. So it's what we were saying before. They're not game to look reality in the eye. It's all too depressing. It'll frighten the horses, frighten off the voters. So we just pretend that none of these things are actually happening out there. Mm. Now, in 2014, we reported, as the bank did, that all that's happened in the seven years since they made their first prediction was that governments and the corporates had postponed the day of reckoning. Now, what's the latest warning saying? Well, what they're saying is that by postponing the day of reckoning, governments and corporations are making the final reckoning several times worse. Um, they've given the report this year a pretty bland title. It just says, when the future becomes today, not very threatening in itself. In fact, the beginning of the report is really quite reassuring if you don't get any further than the first couple of sentences. Uh, not doing as badly as the rhetoric sometimes suggests, they say at the beginning. 
unemployment around the world's fallen, but growth, and now the decline comes, things get bad from here on, growth continues to disappoint, it says. Then, less comforting is the longer-term context. So, what's that longer-term context, according to the bank? And they say that two factors stand out. Debt and the cumulative impact of past decisions. That is, all the things that governments have done to stave off the political and social consequences of 2008 have made everything worse. Mm. They've driven it further, all governments into further into uh, debt, and this has compounded the problem so that when they have to face up to it, it's going to be much, much worse than it had been. Now, they also list three of the big risks that the world economy um, is confronted with. And I just quickly announce so people can read these for themselves. And in fact, um, these notes will go up on the site as well, so people will be able to follow them back through there. Mm. The first of the risks is an unusually low rate of productivity growth. The second is historically high levels of indebtedness. The third, the policymakers haven't the faintest idea what to do next. Uh, everything they've tried hasn't really worked. And as the government says, as the, as the report says, the inability to get to grips with hugely damaging financial booms and busts and the debt fuel growth model that this has spawned, that's the basis of the problems. So what do these things tell us about the future, according to the Bank of International Settlements? Well, they have three areas of policy change. The first of them is to fix up the banking sector itself. This is what they call the prudential, uh, how to regulate the banking sector. And, uh, and fundamentally this means how do you make the banks in a position financially that they can weather another perfect storm like 2008? Um, now the bank's actually quite optimistic about the changes that have happened. Um, I think many of us wouldn't be quite so enthusiastic about the the fairly limited reforms that have been put onto the banking sector. Um, many of the banks, the big ones, have gone back to their bad habits, the pre-cash, pre-crash scams that they were getting up to. And I'd have to say, nowhere, we're going back to China again, nowhere is the problem more obvious than in China. Mm. A couple of months back, The Economist had a 16-page special report on the Chinese financial system. And the headline read, and I'll read it slowly, it is a question of when, not if, right. real trouble will hit China. Yes. When, not if. So that's where they're up to with trying to get some control over the banking system. But, but how, can they, how can they just control the bank? Because there's always two sides to this capitalist system. Um, just regulating the banks and not looking at the real ec economic well, activities yeah. out there. Sorry, you want yeah. to say something? No, no, I mean, that's exactly right. That's what they go on to, and they say uh, pretty much that, you know, that really the prudential system, it has to be, it did have to be strengthened because it was, you know, the banks were doing whatever they liked before 2008. Mm. Um, they're pretty much doing the same now, but things have got a bit tighter for them. Um, 
doing that is the least of the three important things, according mm. to the Bank of International Settlements. Because, you know, as I would say, you can't build a system of dikes that will hold back a tsunami. Mm. Um, and indeed, what the report says, it's as if two waves with, with different frequencies merge to form a more powerful one. And later in the report, and if you want to be really scared, just think about this. This is in this report from this international um, global banking uh, surveying institution. It says, one can run, but one cannot hide. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what they're saying out yeah. there. So we need to take on board, as you said, what are the big problems out there? And mm. these are what are technically called the fiscal and the monetary. That's right. Now, now, the bank has darkened its prognosis from two years ago. As I said before, it said all they've done is to postpone the day of reckoning. Mm. Now they're saying that printing money and running the deficits has indeed softened the social and political impacts for the time being in most places. But, and I quote, when tomorrow becomes today, yes. one may discover that short-term gains have brought long-term pain and worsened policy trade-offs. Mm. So, more pain. Right. And as this happens, it will spread globally, as it did in 2008, and they say the impact of any strains on the rest of the world would be bigger than in the past, both in financial and trade channels. So you're dead right in saying it's what the big issues out there, um, what's going on in the real economy. Mm. And that is too much debt, uh, and that's never been confronted. Um, and the report says... Debt has been acting as a political and social substitute for income growth for far too long. Yep. So they have deep-seated desperation about what they can do to get things really turned around. Their fear, as I said, is that when the future becomes today, they keep putting things off, but you can't do that forever. But the other, now, point, the other point, Humphrey, I wanted to just... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Is, is mm, right. How much more can they exploit and you know where is their gap for exploiting before they exploited the, the colonies then they, they exploited um, workers from third world countries and that continues to a certain extent yeah. and they've exploited or further exploited their own working class in all these first world countries mm-hmm. they, it's got to come to an end the string isn't ongoing Some, they've got to stop well, somewhere well they can you know I mean they can plunder the natural world even more and they do, but they can keep doing more of that more intensely, and they can screw down further on the working class everywhere. Mm. I mean, we haven't suffered at all yet compared to, say, oh, no. what the Greeks have suffered. Yes, you know? absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a great deal more. I mean, you know, there's a whole bits of the world where, as they say, they've used the debt, they've run up, they've printed money because they're frightened of the social and political consequences. Mm. Absolutely. But in terms of the economy... That's what it's going to have to come to, and we, can, you know, we will kind of get around to that. Now, when we look at what they're talking about, we've been some pretty gloomy phrases so far, but the one that really blew me out of the water is, and I quote, slowly and carefully, one should not underestimate the risk of a doom loop. Hmm. Pretty scary, isn't it? I know. Mm-hmm. It's going to be worse than the 30s. It's going to be pretty ghastly. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're, you know, it's, it's the kind of, you know, well, it really is the title of a sort of, you know, um, horror movie. 
You know, mm. doom loops. But this is what they're saying faces the global economy. And they define a doom loop. It's where weaknesses in government budgets and weaknesses in corporate balance sheets feed into each other. They give a whole chapter to the doom loop in their annual report. It's an indication of how seriously they really take it. Now, the fiscal problem is about this very thing, of governments spending more than they are taking in. Mm. Um, I mean, China did the big splurge in 2009, a trillion dollars on infrastructure, and they had to do it again in 2015 just to steady the ship. But none of the central bankers now know what to do. As the report says, they're pressing on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. Mm. So you get austerity and you get quantitative easing because they really do not see a way of fixing it in the way they used to be able to. Now, what the big problem is, not just if you've got a bit of a debt like we've got in Australia, but the ratio of government debt to gross domestic product. And Japan is the real worrying story. There, the, the debt-to-GDP ratio is almost 300%. Um, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, how it keeps going is the prime example, surely, of the doom loop. The ex-governor of the Bank of England pointed out recently, reminded us that the Bank of Japan is printing currency. And what do they do with it? They buy Japanese government debts. Mm. Now, I just don't understand. I mean, I can understand what they do, but I don't understand how that economy keeps going. You know, it just seems to me like a kind of thimble and trick. <laughs> but that's what they've been able to keep doing for the time being. But, you know, it's not actually driving their economy forward. It just hasn't worked out there. Now, the other one is the availability of low interest rates so that you can borrow and boost the economy, you know, as they say. Mm. Credit and low interest. Now, this is the key problem. You know, the, the, um, it's the key sign. It's not the key problem. I mean, the key sign is these low interest rates. Negative in Japan. Negative across most of the of the European economies. But they're not stimulating growth. It isn't working anymore. No. Rather, and this is what the bank's been saying, or very alarmingly, what the bank's been saying is, far from stimulating any real growth out there, it's compounding the problems. It's making everything worse. You know, 2014, they said, postponing the day of reckoning. Mm. 2016, they're warning that by postponing it and everything they've done in order to postpone the day of reckoning, the day of reckoning will be several times worse, worse. than it uh, would otherwise have been. Mm. Now, what they want to do is not the kind of policy that you and I would not want. I mean... When they're in the job of saving the global capitalist system, um, which is not what we're in the job of trying Absolutely to do. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. But this is what the bank's own closing note of warning is. We need policies that we will not once again regret when the future becomes today. Now, when will that be? Well, they don't give a use-by date to the capitalist system. Of course not. But they do say... Events often unfold in slow motion for a long time and then suddenly accelerate. Mm. They also talk about a snapback uh, where the doom loop uh, can suddenly snap into 
um, into operation. So this is kind of, you know, where we're up to. Um, we've got a day scary of Scary stuff, really scary stuff, isn't it? Well, it is. And, you know, and really whole sections of the labour movement and, you know, what, what our enemies would call the extreme left pretty much ignore it. Yeah. You know, talk about everything except how the real economy works and what's going on. You know? So our job is to just get people to, to read and pay attention to this report this time again from the Bank of International Settlements because, you know, God, if they don't know, who is likely to? Mm. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Humphrey. And Humphrey is um, author and a political commentator. He lives in Canberra and is a regular contributor to our program. And thank you, Humphrey. Um, of course, Dick, the Green Left uh, reporter from Spain. And we had Sean Harley from Mali from the um, Bass Straits kayaking team. Thank you for listening. Um, we will be, I'll be back in a fortnight, but the uh, other team, Annie, will be back next week.